0: Fit Toys.
1: Welcome to episode six sixty three with my guest Tiffany Carter. Uh, this is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads—from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. Gracie is though. Gracie just completed her hours and. Um, She's going gangbusters, (laughs) and the her modality is treat based, which I've got a question. Really, uh, how good the college was that she got her LMFT from? She did. (laughs) She did it virtually, and it's based in a Petco thank you to those of you who have been signing up for patreon uh as i've been saying every week for the last couple of months i had to walk away from a major source of income uh for ethical reasons and uh, lawyers have advised me to not talk publicly about it just yet um so that is all i will say but it has left the podcast uh in a big big financial hole um and I, I need help. I need financial help. And if you can help us, that would be great. We really need to get to about 1,500 monthly Patreon supporters to break even. And uh, right now we're at 774. And God bless those of you who, who have... Uh, chipped in, it means uh, a lot to me. And those of you that don't have the money to chip in, you can always help the podcast by spreading the word about it on social media, telling your friends about it, going and filling out a survey, especially a good love survey. That always brightens my day. Um, had another interesting uh, hangout, Zoom hangout with the uh, $20 a month uh, and above Patreon supporters and uh we do it every sunday afternoon this uh, last sunday i think we had about 20 people and we talked about setting boundaries with family members so you can imagine it was pretty fruitful a lot of people um not only weighed in with uh stuff that they're struggling with but they got a lot of support from other people who've gone through similar things and that's kind of my favorite thing about being in a support group or any kind of uh get together conversation um it's just, it's so easy to go to that place of hopelessness. We're, we're alone, but my family's different, you know, etc., etc. Anyway, here's some surveys. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled out by Zoe from Australia. Hello, Zoe. Good to hear from you. Zoe, long time listener. Uh, and she asked, what was your most surprising defense mechanism and how are you dealing with that now? At first, I was like, I don't know. I don't know what's surprising, what defense mechanism has surprised me. And then I remember in my early 20s, I was studying, at, uh, studying improv at the Second City in Chicago and our teacher was taking suggestions and I don't remember what the suggestion was I did. But he turned to me, he stopped class and he turned to me and he said, you are so hostile. And it wasn't that what I suggested was hostile towards him, it was just the, the suggestion itself was like angry or hostile. And, and I remember being shocked. Like I thought I was the mellowest, laid back, you know, subtle sense of humor. I had no idea how much anger. I had and how much I was using my sense of humor to deal with my insecurities when I would feel insecure I, my my mouth would get dirty that's that's essentially it in a nutshell and the best example I can think of of this or angry about something if I'd be outraged about something that I is like this is what's ruining you know such and such i went on an audition I don't know, I've been doing dinner and a movie maybe, maybe for five years. And my agent sent me on this audition where they said, it's this edgy kind of news show they're going to do that does that does that's edgy satire. And I was super excited because that's my wheelhouse. I love doing stuff like that. So I get there and they have a little sample reel. They're playing in the waiting room for the actors. And I kid you not, one of the jokes is, A politician is being interviewed and his nose starts to grow and it and it makes that like slide whistle circus noise. And I got so angry. I was like, really, this is edgy. And I was just it was hard to park and I was just I was just pissed off. I was just fucking pissed off. And so I was tempted to leave the audition. But one of the things they asked you to prepare was. Uh, a joke that they just kind of uh, they gave you a topic when you came into the waiting room because they wanted to see your ability to write a joke based on a current event Um, you know with little or no time and so they give you a couple of of different options uh, to write jokes about and this was again back in the 90s Uh, Clinton was still president and and I don't know if you guys remember it wasn't that big of a news story but um, Leonardo DiCaprio uh, I think it was shortly after Titanic came out interviewed the president and people in the news media were like this is ridiculous you know it 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 is what you know what is the president doing being interviewed by an actor and uh so I went into the room and it and uh and they're recording you and I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Flash Dance, but it's like all the judges at the long table just kind of sitting there, and the lady you know peering over her her cat glasses and uh and they said, "Do you have a joke prepared for us and uh I said, "Well, you know, I'm kind of interested in that topic about Leonardo DiCaprio um interviewing the president why you know why would the president waste his time sitting down?" And talking to an actor when there's so many important things in the world to be doing. Uh, You know, I said the presidency is about honor and dignity. And I think that they should crochet that and hang it on the wall right where he got his cock sucked. And that is the response that I got. Complete silence for five seconds. And then the lady with the cat glasses goes... Oh, my. So that is an example. Sarah. that was kind of a long-winded way of sharing my coping mechanism of my humor being aggressive when I'm upset about something. Thank you for that question, Zoe, and I, I hope you're doing well. This is from the What Has Helped You survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Heiki. And uh, what are your issues or struggles? She writes, I often struggle with incessant negative thoughts. As soon as something is looking good for me, I spiral in my mind and assume it will not last. Our minds can convince us to believe the most awful things about ourselves. What has helped you deal with them? The past couple days, I've felt hopeless that I will live in this basement forever, that no one will love me. Today, it rained. I got in my car and drove to the cemetery and then parentheses, morbid, I know, But I arrived there and just walked and walked until I felt like running as fast as I could. The people buried there lived their lives. Maybe their lives were cut short. Maybe they never actually lived and moved on autopilot constantly. Maybe they never found love. I am not yet in the ground. I need to start living. What, if anything, have people said or done that has helped you with your issues? I'm lucky to have supportive people in my life who tell me what I should hear that I often sabotage my own joy and happiness and build walls around myself. Acknowledging those things has helped me move forward. Thank you for uh, for sharing that. And what an important topic that that you know we talk a lot on the podcast about ways that that we have been wronged. But I think it's really really important to never forget that. We have to find out where we need to take responsibility and say, okay, you know, I'm not a victim anymore. Yeah, I'm I'm not crazy about the hand that was dealt to me, but what the fuck am I going to do it? Do about it? This is an email that I got from uh, Daniel. He's a listener, and uh, he wrote a guest blog on the website um, about being a, a veteran and kind of the whole thank you for your service thing. It's really, really well thought out. He's also an author. He has a, a book on Amazon called uh, Class 8604, as much as I hate to plug Amazon. Um, and he wrote me after uh, the podcast I did with Jesse Neland, uh And we had talked a little bit about suicidal Ideation on the podcast. And uh, Dan writes, "Uh, I enjoyed your podcast with Jesse Nealand and appreciate the important and candid work you're doing. Early in, you mentioned your discussion about suicidal ideation with your girlfriend and how no one should be afraid to have such a frank discussion with their therapist. I just wanted to let you know, and perhaps you could remind your veteran listeners, that such frank discussions could do more harm than good for veterans who get their health care provided by the Veterans Administration. Such statements can trigger for the veteran, in parentheses, with no supporting evidence on the part of the provider whatsoever, uh, end of parentheses, many state so-called red flag laws. The veteran may find their doors being busted in by police trying to, quote, protect the veteran. The veteran will often lose their constitutional right to lawfully possess a gun. Again, no verbalized threats against oneself or others. Simply being a veteran with PTSD is often enough in the mind of a therapist to better be safe than sorry and or driven by a self-interest to protect their own license at the expense of the veteran's health and well-being. Politicizing gun ownership aside, this is a right many veterans hold dear and shouldn't automatically lose it because they casually mentioned to their therapist they dabbled with the thought of suicide. This doesn't even consider the sudden loss of a sense of safety and security in one's home, the shame the veteran may be subjected to by his neighbors, and the potential threat to his or her livelihood. None of these concerns need enter the mind of the non-veteran. When we signed the dotted line and served our country, we veterans understood we gave up our constitutional rights while serving. However, many may not realize some never return to us even long after our obligated service has ended. You may enjoy doctor-patient confidentiality. The veteran who has his or her health care provided for by the VA does not did you know that even though THC slash marijuana is legal in many states because it is federally illegal, if the veteran mentions such use to their doctor, they risk losing access to the very health care they earned in their service, and the country is contractually obligated—oh, and this is part of a uh, longer sense— um, <laughs> It was a long sentence. Did you know that even though the THC marijuana is legal in many states because it is federally illegal if the veteran mentions such use to their doctor, they risk losing access to the very health care they earned in their service, and the country is contractually obligated to provide, question mark. Any veteran currently using illegal drugs risks being permanently banned from access to VA health care. I had no fucking idea. Let's not even mention the great benefit psilocybin represents to the veteran community. As a veteran, there's always an invisible overseer watching over me, listening in on my conversations with my doctor. Knowing that feels threatening, but what can I do? I, like many vets, need the care, so we accept we need to play the game. Maybe the average taxpayer can contact their elected representatives, I'm part of the veteran, and say, hey, let the vet be honest with their doctor without threat of losing care. Who cares about illegal drug use? Let them speak freely and let us take care of them. I've had VA-funded healthcare for years. I've never fully been honest with my doctor. I can only imagine how it feels. Thanks again for everything, Dan. So thoughtful, Dan, and I had no idea I had no fucking idea, and I'm really grateful that you brought this uh, to our attention. This is from the Love Survey, and this is filled out by Ash, and they write, I love waking up on a spring morning after it rained the night before and no one in the house is up yet. I make a fresh cup of coffee and sit at the kitchen table near the cracked open window listening to the birds chirp and make it known I need to refill their feeders. The sun's not totally over the trees yet, and the rays create such a beautiful golden-orange lighting over the wet grass. I sip my coffee, feel the cool breeze sneaking in the window, and spend some quality time with my cat, who also enjoys these quiet moments very much. I love it. And you hit on the major three. I've, I've read hundreds of these love surveys, and the most popular things that get mentioned are coffee, pets, and nature. I think that's the name of my next band. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by Rabbit Heart at 4 a.m. And uh, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? She writes, for some reason I tell myself that I have made the wrong decisions throughout my life and that I will continue to do so. Because of this, I have a bug issue, oh, a big issue, a little typo there, I have a big issue with indecisiveness and I find it almost paralyzing having to make decisions. When I try to explore these thoughts and dig into them a little, I can see that that the decisions I did make in my life up until this point haven't been that bad. I have always done my best, and nothing catastrophic has happened. Still, when I think about the present moment and the future, I am straight back at the feeling of, I will make the wrong decisions. It feels inevitable. This leaves me in a state of paralysis. At times, and I spend my early mornings obsessed on the things I can't decide upon. The big theme in my head is basically, it's going to be wrong, no matter which decision I make. So silly, so abstract almost, but for me, it's an issue I've been struggling with since I was a child. Boy, did that one ring some bells for me. Holy shit. I know that paralysis all too well. I think a lot of people relate to that one. And I think there's, there's oftentimes perfectionism in there you know maybe maybe it's a history of unconditional love or we just made it all up in our head but yeah you are not alone with that one my friend this is from the psych ward experiences uh survey and this is filled out by uh thoroughly modern millie uh who identifies as agender and they write uh I was hospitalized because there was a medication screw-up, and I went from hypomanic to full-on manic for the first time in my life. I jumped out of a car because I thought my mom was a serial killer. (laughs) In parentheses, she wasn't. Oh, spoiler. Thankfully, the car wasn't moving at the time. She was driving me to the hospital to get help because she and my wife were worried about me. Describe your experience. I got back on the right meds and was pretty much back to normal by day two, but stayed there for about 14 days. One of the harder things for me, aside from my roommate, who I'd rather not talk about, was not going outside. I wish there was some law requiring daily outdoor time for folks in inpatient care. The weather was beautiful and I could see it out the windows, but during the time there, I only got two 30-minute outdoor rec times in a tiny courtyard during the second one, I just lay on the ground and absorbed sun and listening to bird song. It was more th- therapeutic than any of the actual therapy I had there. I smuggled a couple of pieces of clover back in for my friends that I made there who didn't get to go outside. The degree to which a tiny piece of grass was appreciated speaks volumes to how important the natural world is for our brains. My consciousness might be disintegrated.
0: Heavy-weighted blanket on my brain. Symptomatically. And I can't think straight. Things present themselves for a reason. And I can't see straight.
1: I couldn't even drive.
0: The first movie that I remember watching with him.
1: Post-traumatic stress. When I was
0: like five years old was Pulp Fiction.
1: (laughs) And Moral Injury. I
0: would act out the scenes. Gonna go to hell. With my Barbies.
1: (laughs) The greatest source of our suffering... Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens. ...is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions. It is
0: very hard to heal in dark isolation.
1: I developed compassion. It is in connection and community where that happens. The process was nearly unbearable. Like, I'm going to have to kill myself. We'll be right back after this. (laughs) I'm here with Tiffany Carter um you're a mental health advocate a fellow nut job you were recommended by andrea ashley she's like oh you have to have her on she's a recovering shit show uh, and she's familiar with the podcast thank you for for coming
0: i'm so happy that i can be here and share exactly how fucking crazy i am (laughs) Don't judge it by by the cover. I look like I have it together, but there's we got some dark things to discuss.
1: Where do we Where do we dive in?
0: Ooh, well, it depends on how deep you want to go.
1: Well, what do you think? You've listened to the podcast. Let's go to the bottom. Let's join the catfish down at the.
0: Okay, <laughs> the we're, murky uh, we're, we're okay. We're gonna go there, and so,
1: I, I want to uh, also share to the people who are listening. There's recovery. In here, But I think it's most effective when we do get to recovery, um, or at least management of the issues. Um, it, it's uh, helpful to put it in context to, to show, you know, as they say in support groups, what it was like, what happened, and, and what it's like now.
0: Yeah. I mean, where I'm at now is, first of all, I'm alive. So about eight and a half years ago, on my actual birthday, I went to off myself in a very controlled fashion. I knew which pills to take. I had access to the pills because of the career I was in. I had them all laid out. I even went and got my nails done. It was like that. It was a calm resolve. Like, I'm finally... Ugh, i'm fine i have i'm done i'm finally get to be out of this i did not see any other way out i'd been to a million years of therapy i had shelf help i had all the books all the things <laughs> shelf
1: help i've never heard that
0: it, I, it's like yes. a full i mean yeah w- welcome to my home it's barnes and
1: noble i all mean right. it
0: really is crazy
1: would it be fair to say that that you were lacking community
0: i on the outside Um, no, but in depth, genuine, I was in my false self. So I was a version of what I thought I needed to be and who I needed to be. So no one really knew me. So I'd say things in my head of, God, if they only knew.
1: So the masks. And I the had Trying the masks. to be impressive. Yeah. You know, that whole that whole deal. It's so funny when we're in that, we don't realize that we are 180 degrees from where we need to be, that the connection is a result of sharing the ugly, and, sharing and the And I imperfect. thought,
0: and people would say, oh, Tiffany's so real. Tiffany's so authentic. And I thought I was, but I also knew they didn 't know like the real ugly story i couldn 't wait, and I used to be a tv newscaster and i and it started then i couldn 't wait until I came home and got that costume off. The first thing I did when I got in the door was take the makeup off, put on you know some like old college sweatpants or whatever, and I could be myself and I could exhale
1: it that, that, 's so funny that you mentioned that because whenever I watch the news, the first thing I think of. When I see a newscaster is, what is their home life like? What, We're fucking nuts. What brought them to this? And I would imagine, it, you know, it's what you see with actors and musicians and other people. is It's like, here's the mask that I think is going to bring me love.
0: I think it's actually even worse with newscasters because... You don't get to play, like, an array of characters, right? You have a teleprompter. You can't swear. You know, it's very Mm -hmm. confined. You have to wear, like, a a costume. Mm -hmm. They are in control of your hair. I wore fake glasses because they wanted me to look more distinguished. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to be seen, but I equally wanted to hide and be left alone.
1: And so was being a newscaster... Striking a combination of both of those, because there was a constraint to it where you knew it wasn't you you weren't going to look nuts on a given mm. on a on a given moment.
0: I never thought about public. that, but I think that did make me feel safe mm-hmm. because fast forward many years to what I do now as a podcaster and I do a lot of um, content online that feels that 's very vulnerable, yeah. and I to do a lot of work on feeling safe to be that vulnerable to get here, but yeah, it was controlled. I knew what to do to to be a good girl and to not mess up
1: i think for, for many of us, especially addicts and people who grew up in households without boundaries uh, there's something very soothing. About knowing what the, the rules are, what the can and can'ts, because I think that addict part of the, the mind or, you know, whether you're dealing with bipolar or anything where there's kind of chaos in our brain, there's something safe about knowing this is off limits. This is okay. I don't know. I find something comforting about constraints. I, I get paralyzed by, uh, the myriad of choices uh, about the how to, how to proceed with something that I'm going to make the wrong choice. And it's crippling sometimes. So when it's like, no, you only have <laughs> two choices or three choices or there are no choices. You go out and you do this. I find something very comforting about that.
0: I could see that. And that's probably why one of many reasons why I resisted to having my own business, because that's where you get the array. There's and then that's a whole nother situation in the brain. You know, when you're working for someone else, especially a big corporation, very clear. You have a contract. These are Mm. these are the rules. And growing up, my mom is a narcissist. She's my only living relative. My dad died Right before my twenty fifth birthday. So she was the prominent parent I was raised by. And she's the show. And with someone who's that sick, I was always gauging, but you never knew what you were gonna get. The rules changed all the time. So mm-hmm. it makes sense. Yeah. Now that I'm having this conversation with you, why why I liked having a box, but I also resented the <laughs> exactly. box. <laughs> exactly.
1: Exactly. Uh, so where do we, where do we start? We got a little snapshot of where uh, where you were at your bottom. Let's back up and and trace the path to the to the bottom. What are some of your earliest memories uh, growing up? The ones that you think exemplify?
0: I think this one's important because I thought I was so alone in it, and if it's stuck with me this long. There's something to be explored there, so as an only child and being raised just you know by my mom predominantly, Dad was the doormat, they were divorced, and I was four. Mom had the bevy of rotating men, people, whatever to fill all of the attention and all the needs.
1: Did you feel unsafe in a in a house where strange men were coming in?
0: Yes, and you will soon hear that that was an accurate way for me to feel the house the business was run out of the house her business what
1: was her business it was
0: like a marketing a food and beverage marketing company Mm -hmm. and when i say run out of the house i'm talking 50 people coming in and out six seven days a week 10 phone lines before you know like old school phone lines with the obnoxious ring like it was chaos all the time there were two um gourmet kitchens i mean this was a an Olympic size pool.
1: Oh, so she it was, was mommy, quite successful. It, it was
0: mommy dearest. There's a lot of mommy dearest stuff. Gotcha. That that movie, um, for people who might not know it. Go get triggered, watch Mommy Dearest.
1: <laughs> it's so it's so fantastically over the top and yet also not over the top.
0: Not in my case. It's like that this, was real.
1: It's like the subject matter and the facts are uh very much real and not all that rare, but the acting is so over the top it's uh I, I think it's definitely a top five in the gay community of <laughs> camp and fantastic and awfulsome
0: well the gays love my mom she has the fake rich person accent so oh, she goes deep no. with it it is and that part is entertaining it's like you're from rural Michigan like we're uh-huh. fine but it it is entertaining now that I've gone through and done all this work so she would come to read to me
1: she's as doing a bedtime air, air story. Quotes.
0: Yeah, air quotes, meaning she's doing what she thinks a good mom is supposed to do for whatever reason. There wasn't any like genuine heart. And I even knew as a six-year-old, she didn't really want to be doing that. Like I felt it. it she she was just like checking a box or something.
1: Yeah, And, and she, kids pick up on that.
0: The kids are so smart. People, we forget that kids really, they do. They pick up on it. This is why I don't have children. I don't want children. And I never wanted children because I'm not well enough, honestly, to have children. I wouldn't want to pass it on to them. So she would read and then she would say, I'm going to the bathroom. I'll be right back. In a very short period of time, she never came back ever, but said it regularly. And I would get up and be worried about her. Like, I thought she was coming back. But I would go walk down the hall and to her door and I was so terrified to turn the knob. I was terrified and I would like so I'd turn it so super slow to see if it caught, you know, if it mm-hmm. was locked. And I just wanted to know if it, it was always locked and she never came back, not one time. And so then I had to self soothe and try to get myself to sleep Which is not easy for a kid that just felt, you know, really abandoned. All the
1: great tools that kids have. Right. (laughs) What were you afraid of turning that knob that she would be dead, that she would explode at you?
0: I was terrified of her unpredictability. You never knew what you were going to get with her, Mm -hmm. that she was going to explode. Yeah, that I was going to get in trouble. Her main form of punishment when I was an adolescent was stonewalling, was ignoring,
1: silent treatment,
0: and I'm talking not for an hour, like a solid week. There would I would be fed, you know, I'd be clothed, bathed, school, but like a ghost, I could walk right up to her, and I learned the people pleasing and the manipulation. Then, mommy, mommy, that that that, you know, I'd do all of that. None of it worked. I remember... Even
1: apologizing?
0: Nothing. I would put on yellow sticky notes. That was the only color at that time. And I would write on there, I'm sorry, mommy. I'm sorry. And tape them all over. I tried everything. And it didn't work. And then one day, it would just be like nothing ever happened. And I'm back in her good graces again.
1: How would you soothe yourself?
0: This is why I've not seen the Barbie movie. And some people have said, actually, that movie is was triggering for them. I have no desire to see it. And I think this is why. And I think it's also irritating that no one thought this behavior was weird. Again, only child. So I had to play, you know, my, by myself a lot of times. So I had the Barbie dream house with all the, you know, Barbies, but how I played with the Barbies was I'm talking violent shaking of them to where I'd be sweating as a kid. Viol. I'm talking, I loved it. I mean, their heads would fly off and it was like, I mean, you can't, well, you might be able to see me if you're watching on right. YouTube or something, but like I would be shaking the crap out of them.
1: With the intent?
0: That's how I'd make them talk, you know? I don't know. I, I don't know why I did it, but it was so aggressive and I'd be sweating and I loved it. It was probably, right, I didn't, it was a subconscious form of release, but people... In my household, saw me do it. Like remember all these, like some of these employees, mm-hmm. when my grandparents would visit, they have witnessed it, and then they would make fun of me. So I knew it was weird. So when I would go to play at other kids' houses, I knew I couldn't play like that, and it was really tough for me to not been, play like that.
1: Been, how was the shaking received by Ken?
0: I'm not. I wasn't really into Ken. Ken wasn't into me, man. I'm not a Ken kind of gal. <laughs> He's a little vanilla. You know what I'm saying? <laughs>
1: oh, my God. So uh, share, share some more.
0: So let's flash forward to what you said. Like, did you feel, and you picked up on that, and I, I don't think you know that much about my story. You know, you said, did you feel dangerous in that house with all those strange men and people coming and going? I felt uneasy and... It was a stressful environment. I mean, 10 of those horrible ring phone lines constantly, all the time, doorbell ringing, people coming in and out. It was so much- And strangers. And strangers, and just constant stimulation all the time. So starting at age 11, my mom had me watched babysat by a male employee- my mom's drug she's addicted to attention like some people would Mm. say like an attention whore but this is a true addiction uh she's on her fifth husband now and there were many many men in between i mean and a lot of them were men who were affiliated with me like she fucked my tennis coach and then i wasn't able to have him as my great tennis coach anymore things like that and so this male employee of hers was set to babysit me and i even thought that was weird at 11 to have a male babysitter but whatever because i already had this like granny nanny thing going on my whole life and so there were these like weird fixtures of people that i like that would be there and then would go away because some my mom cut them off
1: gracie come here so um so she would have have sex with these uh people so you wouldn't be able to see the tennis coach anymore uh you were kind of sometimes with the grandparents sometimes with with other people but it wasn't consistent
0: it was more like there would be certain prize puppets that she typically employed that were in her good graces and then that could last for years but then all of a sudden they would speak up to her or maybe set a boundary and they were immediately cut off and gone and i didn't there was nothing discussed to me right what happened to so-and-so what happened to so-and-so and And it would just be shut down
1: yeah not a lot of nuance in the mind of the narcissist
0: exactly it was like it's a light switch like i tell people right they're gone So this guy is watching me, and he... In
1: in your home? In my
0: home, in this home that was also his place of work, too.
1: Right. And is your mom there?
0: She is not there. She's out on, you know, dating, trying to get her next relationship, because that was the priority. Gotcha. And he started the grooming process of positioning himself, and my mom also helped him. To position himself as my brother. I was told to call, refer to him as my brother. He started buying me things like Legos, frozen yogurt. I was getting all sorts of attention and that I wasn't getting. Then he became my driver because my mom couldn't be bothered to drive me, you know, to school or dance, so then I had a, a driver. And then he started molesting me. And and I wasn't surprised. This is what's interesting. I, w- I wasn't surprised when that was coming. There's a lot of stuff I know I've blocked out that I don't need to dig up in order to be in a healed state. Obviously, I've done a lot of work. This is why I can share my story. Right. right? And I wasn't surprised. It's like, I knew it was coming. You know, it was just part of the job at what, 11.
1: Was was sex and sexuality something that was on your radar? at that at that age, or was it just the the not being surprised that being taken advantage of in in some capacity it happened? was more
0: about being taken advantage of my mom was overly um inappropriately i feel sexual in nature as a way to be like a you know, like a black widow to attract the man. Mm -hmm. So I watched a lot of her manipulation, sexual manipulation moves.
1: Are are, are there any examples that that come to mind?
0: She would parade around in very, um, like, do you remember Fredericks of Hollywood? (laughs) (laughs) Remember the catalogs? Like the bright red, right? Like she would parade around in like that kind of, you know, lingerie, like lingerie that's meant for like a bedroom. Yeah. And it didn't matter who was around. And then you were expected to make some sort of complimentary, like something. The visitor, gesture. the
1: visitors or you?
0: Every, anyone who was there, right, had to say something. And so it was, there was that kind of stuff that went on. So, I saw the response of men to that.
1: So power, sex was power.
0: Yes, exactly. So I knew, it was weird. I knew that something, it was not surprising to me, but I was also equally devastated because I I genuinely saw him as my brother. And I'm here, I'm an only child. Like, it's kind of like when you know... When you know an alcoholic that you love and they're saying they're not going to drink again, and maybe they go three weeks, and it's just long enough for you to believe that they're not going to drink again, and then they do, you knew it was, Oh, the, you, fa- you,
1: the fantasy yeah. of somebody changing.: You
0: knew you kind of know it's coming, yeah, but it's still heartbreaking. It was like that. And my mom, this is where it gets really fucked up. My mom was aware this was going on. She would pay and he would use the corporate credit card to take me on adult dates. Like I'm talking in Chicago, five-star restaurant, champagne ordered. I'm wearing an outfit and I'm 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. I mean, over and over and over again, right in front of her. She orchestrated it and paid for it.
1: And and you would be staying with him in a hotel room no, or what?
0: I would come back to the house and he molested me in the car and in my bedroom, in particular at a certain time at night in my bedroom. But it was almost nightly because that was also his place of work. So he would work during the day, maybe go get dinner or something, bring me back my treat Fro- which was frozen yogurt, which is why I'm working on an ice cream addiction now. Literally. Mm-hmm. It's all tied together. And then it would be around, I called it mash time, like meaning the show mash mm-hmm. in Chicago came on at 1030 at night. And that music to this day, oof, you know, I, that's the first thing I think of. As soon as that music came on, I knew that was happening. He would wait until... I was in that twilight sleep moment where you're not quite asleep. You're not quite awake, which in a way was good for me because it helped Mm -hmm. me dissociate more from it. But the door was open. She was down the hall. I mean, he would take me out to these dinners, to concerts, like a full on, like a boyfriend and come back to the house with me to my bedroom and molest me in the bedroom. And she paid for it. Wow. And this wasn't the only person. So then it escalated to other people that she set me up to go out with and took me to, you know, I call them like the, I call them the host stores, like in the mall, like Contempo Casual, where you get like the club clothes. Right. If you haven't noticed, I use a lot of humor too. <laughs> Manage I love it. manage I love my it. manage my illness, Swat, which is why I love this show. Because yeah. you're sick. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. Thank you.
0: <laughs> and she would buy the outfit, like a hot pink micro mini skirt on a twelve year old. Wow. Wow. So I thought this was normal, and then she put me to work. You probably some of your listeners probably remember this, like the Jaeger girls.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, Jaeger Meister.
0: I won't confirm this because I don't want anyone calling me, but like imagine a 12 or a 13 year old as a Jaeger girl in a club in Chicago. Like, how is this happening? Right. Like right. the car shows where you're dressed provocatively and showing the cars. This is this was my middle school years. This was my job.
1: I, I had to go what do you th- i imagine you've spent some time thinking about this what was your mom getting out of it you know uh financially emotionally i don't know sexually uh mentally uh, have you ever tried to get into that headspace
0: i mean sure i've tried to <laughs> yes. i can i can sit here and psychoanalyze everything
1: and what are the thoughts that that come to mind about where she was
0: I have, her I have no that. idea what happened to this woman. My grandparents, her parents were lovely and they both lived a long time. So my grandmother um, died only a few years ago. So I was already in recovery. And I mean, I'm talking picked up on nothing from my either of her parents,
1: which nothing I creepy, wish I did. Nothing abusive.
0: Nothing. And yeah, that
1: has to make it harder.
0: Exactly. I, I kind of wished i did pick up on something so I could have more empathy for her like and I asked her at one point had anything happened to her and I mean that's silly to ask a narcissist anything
1: right like right she's yeah. like what are you talking about And it could have been somebody outside the family
0: right it could have been anything and and maybe nothing maybe right. she's this is how she's born
1: she it, has it a sickness be. yeah uh, psychopathy they believe is, is uh, genetic mostly genetic
0: yeah i mean obviously not well i i think it was attention here's what i really think her self-worth was so low she's also anorexic self-worth was so low that i think she thought she could get more of the guys and the male attention Mm. leveraging me you know like i'm a bonus pack
1: i gotcha i gotcha
0: that's the only thing I've ever really been able to think. And then, if it's an employee or a client, money, business, mm-hmm. um, employee retention
1: plan. I mean, yeah, I mean that's fucked up, but it's true. And and it is such a um, an important truth in recovery. If we if you were treated as an object as a child, to be able to face that truth. Because everything falls into place. When, when, when I was able to face that truth, um, everything made sense. Every, the pattern, seeing the pattern rather than a single event was uh, devastating, but also I feel like a necessary door to walk through to be able to feel sadness that I, in many ways, my humanity was not seen. It's certainly not consistently. And I was a vehicle for her to, to fulfill her needs. And I don't know if there's any way to fully recover without facing that truth and, and grieving it and, or anger or whatever those you're, you're closing your eyes and nodding right now. Like it's that's, that's ringing a bell.
0: You have to sit in the dirty diaper is what I call it. There's no way around the pain. I've tried every way. Thank God I don't have a the addict gene for substances. I'd be dead in a pile of cocaine somewhere in Brazil. I mean, I've really tried everything. And there was nothing that... There was nothing that got me to be able to feel less pain and have some sense of serenity on most days other than sitting in it and really like gut-wrenchingly grieve it.
1: Talk talk about what it feels like in your body when you're when you're going through that. The uh, and in, in the thoughts that you're thinking, the emotions that are coming up. Paint a paint a picture for somebody who's never experienced that.
0: I go right into a full spiral upon waking and it's not lost on me that today is my mom's birthday. And I was trying to avoid us recording on this day, but God wanted it to be on this day, and it's not lost upon me. So today's a good example. I woke up in a spiral. That's normally what happens, like in a sheer panic where I can latch on to anything of I'm not enough. It's like a shame hit upon shame hit upon shame hit. Look how puffy and fat you look. You're lazy. You procrastinated. You didn't get this done yesterday. This person's so much further ahead of you. No one cares about you. No one wants to listen to your show. Who the hell do you think you are anyway? Get it together. I mean, I'm talking nonstop in that loop. And how it feels in my body is I feel heavy. I'm talking like. I'm wearing a giant weighted vest and I'm 80 years old. Like everything is like going through um, thick mud, like even to brush my teeth and to shower if I don't catch it. Now I can, because of the tools of recovery and being in support groups and all the work I've done and sitting in the dirty diaper, I can acknowledge my feelings like, you know what? Like this is a hard day. That's never going to end. Like it's sad. I should have a mom where it's her birthday and I'm delighted to get something for her. You know, to send her flowers, to take her to lunch. And instead I'm I have to be no contact because she's so sick and I don't have any other family members and I'm not a mom myself. And then all that stuff comes up and of course wow. I'm sad.
1: Wow. That's that's a lot. Yeah. That is a lot.
0: And it is sad. And it also makes me angry. And it's understandable. And that little Tiffy, I call her, my inner child, she's like, I just want my mama. I want mommy. I want mommy. And I I talk to her.
1: What I What are you know. saying? <sighs> Shut up, you little bitch. Yeah.
0: Shut up. Shut go up. Go shake Barbie. Exactly. Go shake Barbie. In fact, though, like I should get a couple Barbies and shake mm-hmm. them. I think that might be very therapeutic for me now that I think about it. I tell her that it's okay. I know, I know that's what you want, and I'm here now, and I'm sorry that happened to you. And what would make you feel happy today or right now? What could we
1: do? Uh, that's that is some ninja recovery. And anybody who's listening who's like, wow, that is so fucking cheesy and new agey. Yeah, maybe it, it comes across that way. But I can tell you, like, the day that I took out a picture of myself at like eight when the abuse really started to get sick and was like, I'm buddy, I'm so sorry you went through that. All of the pain came up, and I was able to have empathy. For And see the innocence of that child rather than thinking of it as an him as an adult me that was just two feet shorter who should have been able to handle it
0: i told myself a story that i looked mature for my age and that's why people got confused and no one said anything in public at these restaurants i mean they're serving me alcohol at, I'm talking major hotel chains, tons of people around, like hot spots. My hand is being held across the table from a grown male. And so I built up the story. So like you said, when you saw the picture, when I looked at a picture of me at 11 years old, I look 11. I thought I had to have looked, you know, like, you know, like how we see some pe- kids now and you're like, oh, my God, that. Like I can't that I can't even look. That kid should not be wearing that. Like I thought I was that. And that wouldn't make it okay either. But I was 11. Like I had braces. Wow. Wow. And that's where that's where a lot of, um, a lot of anger came out. My go to emotion, I can get to like depression, despair, shame isolation easy that's very comfy what's uncomfortable for me is anger because i was never allowed to be angry
1: so what does it look like when you get angry
0: it's tough for me to get there that's why i think i need to get the barbies i don't maybe maybe should i get a ken too i don't know i don't feel it had the same effect because his hair doesn't move it was the hair that really did it for me um, Angry for me, what I used to do before doing this work on myself and in recovery is I would pick fights with a part, whoever I was dating. You know, it's not hard. And I dated mostly addicts. So it's not really sure. hard to do.
1: Because they give you a reason to be angry.
0: Exactly. I mean, so I would, did
1: that. Would you um, create a fantasy in your head of who you wanted them to be and then compare it to who they they were? Or did you, do you feel like you were pretty present in it and not in fantasy about who you wanted them to be?
0: I was in total fantasy. I am a codependent through and through, 100% in fantasy, that I could change them, recreating my family dynamic. It's a sick person. If I'm thin enough, pretty enough, charismatic enough, give good enough blowjobs, whatever it is, then... You will uh, fix yourself. You'll be so inspired. You know, you'll see the light and you wouldn't want to lose this amazing woman in front of what you. You, th-
1: <laughs> what you. What do you think as you say that out loud?
0: <laughs> I laugh yeah. because it's it sounds insane because I was. Yeah. But now I hear people who are at the stage where I used to be at. And I don't like laugh in judgment. It's like, I really get it.
1: Yeah.
0: And you do sound insane. That,
1: and, and that's one of the things I love about support groups is the collective laughter of shared insanity is so cathartic. It's so cathartic. Agreed. I mean, it
0: is funny. The, some of the stuff I I thought and the thing I mean. That, share, share some of them. I remember I went to a meeting and a support meeting and I. Got a notebook for it and a pen, and I wore like a suit. And this was (laughs) another like I was reporter, newscaster, Tiffany.
1: Oh my god! And
0: I went to the meeting to be able to like fully take appropriate notes to bring back to fix the person that I was with, and couldn't comprehend why that didn't work. You know that's insane. Or tell myself that. If I learned to cook, this was a good one. I hate cooking. I want no part of it. It does not interest me. Okay. But I thought, okay, if I cooked, if I was more what society tells you is like a wifey, you know, Betty homemaker thing. So I started taking up like baking, thinking that would make someone get their shit together. I mean, when I even say it, it's I can, laughable. I,
1: I can see if there's a convection oven involved, but straight up baking. That's I mean, never yeah, you throw
0: some nachos in there or something. Yeah. No, I was doing like with the apron, the whole bit. And I couldn't. I I was fixated on having someone see the light, but it was really because I wanted that for my mom. I wanted her to see what she did and the damage she did. What she missed.
1: What she missed out on. And what she
0: missed out on. And her to say something to me. I mean, I used to have a lot of fantasies on like what she'd say on her deathbed. Like what? I know what I did to you. It was terrible. There's no excuse. I was horrible. It's the biggest regret of my life. And you're incredible and... I know me saying I love you doesn't hold any weight, but I want you to know that you're loved, and all of that was egregious behavior and horrific, and I am willing to spend eternity in hell for it.
1: (laughs) You put some thought into that.
0: I think about everything, like at 5,000% at all times. At all times. This is why I try to find things to dissociate with, TV, scrolling, you name it, like workaholism exercise addiction the brain is just always going
1: one of the things uh you and i were talking about before we started recording was uh anorexia in in relationships um talk talk about that
0: so I used to be a hoe, and,
1: and yeah, and we're not, and we're not talking about uh, food anorexia. We're talking about sexual, social anorexia, withdrawing from things that are nurturing and healthy for us.
0: Yeah, I mean, I used to be straight up a hoe, and I'm not like I'm saying that like jokingly, but not really. I mean, I've dated the United Nations. So if one person in one economic economic class or race that didn't work, then I'd pick some other dynamic. Not realizing I was the common denominator. So that was my drug. Well, isn't that interesting? Because that was also my mom's drug, but mine was for a different reason. I wanted to feel loved. I thought if I didn't have a person, then I wasn't loved. Um, I thought that gave me some sort of worth. Then I'd stack them up. I'd have three going in a rotation. I had the back burner guy. Mm -hmm. I had names for all of it. I made sure I was never without that.
1: What would it feel like when you were without it? Or were you never without it?
0: Never without it. Hell no. Just like a drug addict. So
1: couldn't be be alone?
0: If it was, I mean... God, if it was temporary, I mean, I'd be hitting up the apps. I mean, it, that'd be the priority, just like a drug addict.
1: And and was the uh, the physical intimacy of it satisfying, or was that just a vehicle for the validation and not being alone?
0: You so get it. It was just a vehicle. It was rarely satisfying, although the other person felt it was highly satisfying. Sure, for me. the
1: newscaster knows right? how to fake an orgasm. Right,
0: exactly. Like very performative. Um, whatever I had to do to make sure that person was locked into me, you know, like I was the love of their life. You're the best thing that's ever happened to me. I wanted that over and over and over again. And now we flash forward, which is crazy that I am anorexic with it, not with friendships, but with, I guess you could say, romantic partners sexually,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is nuts because I don't even know how many people I've slept with. And I don't shame myself for it. I accept it. It's understandable, you know, what I did. But now I'm weird. Like, if someone starts, like, even flirting with me, I get hot. I want to run away and hide. Um, I dress I'm dressed nice for you today, but, like, if you saw me normally in my, like, home neighborhood walking my dog, I mean, it it needs to be stepped up a notch. You know, it's like the crazy lady in the mm-hmm. rollers. Mm-hmm. And it's okay if I was doing that from a different place. But what I'm really doing is saying, don't look at me. Don't come near me. So there's a whole dynamic going on with that.
1: Was there something that switched, that turned it from the promiscuity to the sexual anorexia?
0: Yeah, I was engaged. It was my longest relationship. So I always left at like the two-year mark once the oxytocin wore off. Sure. That's my drug of choice. It's the best. I love a freshy high. <laughs> oh, God, I get so skinny. Oh, it's so good. I'm so productive. If uh that that's my drug of choice. So I'd always leave this last relationship to who I was engaged with, lovely man, hardcore avoidant, unrealized, you know, ACA person, unrealized in in many ways. Um, but he felt safe. So instead of being with my mom and recreating that after I got into recovery, the first relationship I got into in recovery. Unbeknownst to me, I went to Daddy because mm. I the focus had not been on Daddy. Of course, it was Mommy because Mommy's so you know sick, right? Well, Dad emotionally abandoned me. Dad wasn't there either. He just it was just in a different way. Mm. And my ex fiance was the first guy. I had ever been with in my entire life, whether it was by choice or things being done to me that didn't have an interest in me sexually at a certain point, like didn't come on to me anymore, didn't try, didn't seem to care that that wasn't going on in the relationship. And that really messed with me. Big time. And it's still messing with me. Oh, so. I've gone, okay, this is someone who's truly seen me. Remember my first relationship and recovery. So not, there's no mass. There's no, those don't exist with me anymore. This is what you get. So seeing the true me, true intimacy, me sick, me farting, me cute, me disgusting, all of it. And that's being rejected. So I must be really fucking gross.
1: That's like the worst fear when somebody starts getting vulnerable is that you're, but I imagine in your support group, you didn't experience that. Nope. Talk about that.
0: No, not at all. No. So when I did, you know, we do that fourth step inventory and then we have a fifth step, which is, you know, sharing. You share basically all your shit with Mm -hmm. someone, um, a trusted person. No. That's where I learned that I didn't have to have the mass, that I could be loved and accepted for exactly who I am and all of my flaws, even if I did something messed up the day before and I could mess up and make amends and you'd still be my friend. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't like murder your cousin or something, right. but like it wasn't the end of the world. You know, you could still be my friend and vice versa. You hurt my feelings or something. We could talk about it
1: what were, if you're comfortable sharing some of the things that you shared with that person that you were like, oh, I was going to take this one to, to the grave with me?
0: I, two things. One, he knew in, in a lot of graphic detail things that have happened to me. I mean, there's a whole pile more that I've
1: you know, when not share. Say he he the person you shared my it with ex fiance.
0: Oh yeah, your, your ex fiance. Is that what you meant?
1: No, I meant with the person in your support group. Oh, I'm
0: sorry. With my the person I shared with in my support group. Yeah, she she was more like a kind of a churchy type lady, mm-hmm. and she sat there and listened for hours. Then she got up and got tea and asked me if I wanted tea. And I'm looking around the room like, isn't this bitch tired of me? Like she's not getting mm-hmm. paid. And I was like, God. I need to wrap, I gotta wrap, I gotta wrap this up, I gotta like loop this back in, and then she comes back, and I go, do you wanna like rest, or like table this, and we can do the rest at another time, like, I've taken up so much of your time, and she was so lovely, and she's like, no, 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 keep going, and I said, have I offended you at all yet? And she said, no, not at all, and and I, be- I could tell she wasn't she full was of genuine. shit, Yeah. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was sharing horrendous things about myself that are not flattering. And it was total acceptance. And that changed my life. Because it helped me accept them within myself.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for a lot of us, somebody had to love us first, which on the surface seems codependent and backwards. But I think when it's when it's in a... uh the setting of a support group where there is nothing to be gained, nobody's working an, ang- an angle, and you can really take that in and know that. I'm not paying this person. They're not trying to fuck me. I'm not trying to fuck them. It sinks in in a way that it doesn't when you're looking for to be seen in a relationship, a romantic relationship, because it has all these other kind of moving parts that can, can complicate complicate that truth sink, sinking in at least for for me and a lot of people i know does that ring a bell for you
0: yeah that's why i i couldn't believe that you know she was doing this what service i mean it was like five six hours
1: You feel different about humanity after somebody. Yeah, because
0: being in like the news biz and then being in I was, you know, at a career in pharmaceuticals, you know, corporate stuff. It was like everyone had an angle, an agenda. You know, everyone's Mm -hmm. being picked. There's always something and living in L.A. There's a lot of that in L.A., right? And my whole life growing up, I always had to trade something and give you something and sacrifice something in order to get a nugget. And I, for the first time, didn't have to trade anything. I mean, what? Okay, maybe two dollars, you know, a meeting or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have to give anything.
1: If you're comfortable sharing the things that you shared with your ex, um, and what that reaction.
0: The two things that I shared with my ex fiance and this is someone like my, I mean, it's identical to my dad, like almost in an eerie way, Mm -hmm. like eye color, demeanor, super extreme avoidant attachment, man, a few words, but very consistent and safe. And that's why I picked him. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I told him a lot of graphic detail. So this is probably something only a fellow sexual abuse or assault survivor understands, so I know you'll get it. For me, there is something very helpful being able to share some of the things graphically on what happened. That doesn't mean I have to do it every time I share about it. But even me reading books of survivors who are more graphic that's helpful to me.
1: It's It's been helpful to me as well because it helps me let go of the, some of the shame because often there's physical arousal, even though your soul is screaming, this feels weird. I feel tricked, you know, exactly. et cetera, et cetera.
0: Exactly. So I shared with him in more detail because you know, I met him one year into recovery. So there was a lot of spiraling triggers. I'd gotten triggered during sex before and so he knew more than any other person in my life, more of the graphic detail. So I was like, oh, he sees me as damaged goods now. Like, he hmm. can't get that out of his head. Gotcha. All he's seeing is, you know, like an abuse victim. And then that's why he's not sexually engaged with right. me.
1: Were, were they things that you w- wanted sexually or didn't want sexually or something else?
0: I wanted him to want me. I wanted him to want me. That's what I really wanted and I couldn't believe that he didn't.
1: Did you want him to want you in a way that was um, on the on the outside um healthy and respectful or did you want him to want you in a way that recreated the abuse?
0: Oh my God, you're so fucking good. Only a fellow survivor would ask that. I appreciate you asking that because that makes me feel very um, understood and seen. So thank you. You're right. I wanted more of a not lovemaking. Let's Mm -hmm. call it that. I wanted more like rough, that kind of sex. And like insatiable like i have to have you that kind of stuff and he wasn't going to do that i mean this is a wonderful person you know this is someone who's highly respectful of other people women me interesting question
1: and and not that it would have been disrespectful for him to role play and engage
0: I tried I tried that path and that was another thing I shared that I felt rejected on is he was very kind of basic sexually and I am not and so I shared some of my like fantasies preferences that I don't know I don't think they're like taboo but who cares if they are right. and he laughed But like, yeah, but it was like the uncom, it still hurt, but it was like the uncomfortable laugh, but it still hurt. And he didn't take me seriously. And I tried a couple more times in different ways to see if like it would spark an arousal or he would share, you know, a fantasy of his totally shut down and then filled with shame. I could feel right now even the shame, the blood going. All the way up from my toes to oh, the yeah. top of my head.
1: Oh yeah, there, there is there are a few things scarier than that moment when you reveal your fantasy or whatever it is that that um, you're afraid you're going to be rejected for, and 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 you know we can. keep shame on ourselves in a way that uh, totally distorts that other person's reaction. It could be that they're just not into that or they're processing it. But we're like, if they don't give us an enthusiastic, that's awesome. That's also my fantasy. You're like, I am terrible. I am disgusting. I am weird. And I can tell you the 9,000 surveys, shame and secret surveys I've read, The most common byproduct of experiencing sexual abuse is a sexual fantasy where there's a power imbalance.
0: Mm. Makes sense.
1: Makes total sense. And
0: I wanted, that was an itch I want scratched and he wasn't going to scratch it. And I felt rejected. I created a story. The truth is this is a shy person Mm -hmm. and that's obviously not his thing. That's the truth.
1: Right. Which is fine. That's totally fine. That's not failing you as a partner.
0: Right. But like I latched on to I'm a disgusting, deviant, you know, ho, what's wrong with me? I must be gross. And then I, I mean, I went, I can go deep with the stories. Like his ex is really skinny.
1: (laughs) Oh, that route. The Facebook route. Exactly. His ex is
0: really skinny and I'm not like a super skinny person. So like, I don't do it for him. I mean, multiple, multiple layers to where eventually this was the demise of this relationship and I had to leave. And it was for no other reason other than this.
1: Would you have to, um, and if you're not comfortable sharing this, please, please don't, um, Would you have to go to some fantasy in your head to reach orgasm with him that involved your fantasy rather than being present with him?
0: Without a doubt. And rarely did I ever have like a true orgasm. I did sometimes, but it required a lot of mental gymnastics. Without a doubt, because what I was wanting, but then it was if we even went back to the Barbies, which (coughs) is a really weird tie. Mm -hmm. Like when I would go to friends' houses and I knew not to shake the Barbies to play them because that was weird. That's how I felt in the bedroom. I knew how I really want to be and what I really want in the bedroom was going to be rejected by him. And so I just kind of like played along.
1: That's That's a lonely place to be.
0: It was very lonely and it's still affecting me. Like I... I still convince myself like I I used to think I was attractive, not like gorgeous, but like I'm a pretty okay looking person Mm -hmm. and I've really done a great job at convincing myself that I'm like a troll, like I'm like a hippopotamus, like I'm a swamp (laughs) monster.
1: (laughs) One of my friends, she used to call herself a manatee. Yeah,
0: exactly. I've, I've really convinced myself of this. And whatever we convince ourselves of, we start seeing confirmation bias of, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so I just kept seeing over and over again. But the pain of that, that's what has led to the relationship anorexia in that area of my life. It sounds terrible. The thought of a date, the thought of flirting with someone. It just sounds so much easier for me to... To not do it mm-hmm. but it's also lonely and not satisfying
1: so talk about the uh, the anorexia what you what you feel what are the things that that shut you down um you've shared a little bit about it but I want to help uh, I want to paint a picture for somebody who's like what what are you talking about?
0: I mean I would have been someone listening to me right now and going who the hell could do that Mm -hmm. like how is that possible when i first read about that this was a thing before i understood some people had it but like i was the opposite i always had to have someone Mm -hmm. so how was this even a thing like going without sex or flirting or anything for a year i was like i i wanted like a you know big award for that that was (laughs) that was a big deal The feeling is, it sounds like a lot of work. That's what my disease tells me. So it convinces me this is a lot of work.
1: The relationship. Yeah. Any Mm -hmm. form
0: of, like, starting a relationship, dating, even a sexual encounter, Mm -hmm. it's a lot of work. You know, there's a lot of weirdos out there. You don't know what you're going to get. It could
1: be a waste of time.
0: Waste of my time, waste of makeup, waste of energy. And then I really convinced myself that, you know, to the point where I even was like, maybe I'm. What's the term when someone isn't? Is it asexual? asexual? I was like, maybe I'm asexual now. I've even thought maybe I'm gay. I mean, because I've really shut that, not that there's anything wrong with that, but I've shut that right. towards males so far off where it's just like, I, I could even see a guy that I find attractive and I instantly go, he's attractive. Ugh, that'd be a lot of work. And he'd think I'm a hippopotamus anyway.
1: <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry to laugh I, at that. No, that it's, I
0: mean, that's what goes through my head. Yeah. It really, and I just shut it down. It feels safer when I hear other people talk about relationships or other people talking about their dating escapades. It doesn't sound intriguing to me. It's not like I'm lusting for it. It actually sounds tiring and horrible. It sounds like a lot of
1: work. I think you get to a certain point in recovery where you realize a relationship is. A healthy relationship with intimacy is going to be messy and involve difficult conversations. Messy not to be confused with chaotic and toxic, but uncomfortable. You have to be willing to navigate, and I had to, to learn this the hard way, I have to be willing to navigate uncomfortable moments to make a relationship work because it is childlike to imagine Everything is going to be that continuing oxytocin high from the from the first couple of dates. And actually, the the relationship I'm in now, there was no oxytocin hot, uh, maybe the first two dates, because I just I hadn't been kind of um, had any kind of physical contact in a long time. So just, a, you know, a hand on my shoulder was like, yeah. oh, my God, this is the most amazing do it for me. feeling yeah, in the world. But realizing that that was going to have to happen, those difficult conversations, um, that was the fork, fork in the road for me. And I think when we get stuck in anorexia, um, I think a lot of times that fear of navigating the uncomfortable um, is is a big part of it. Is, does any of that ring true for you?
0: It takes so much work some days, not every day, but it takes a lot of work some days for me to be productive, be upright, get into a place of surrender and faith. Me managing myself and me managing my two businesses and the people that I help, that already is a lot of work. So the thought of adding another thing to it now that I know better see I didn't know better before this was my first relationship where I stayed past the oxytocin Mm -hmm. now I know what people mean when they say uh, marriage is hard yeah and I used to laugh when people would say it and go oh well they're just not with the right person no it's hard
1: other people's needs can be terrifying even if they're right-sized and expressing our own needs even if they're right-sized, can be terrifying, especially, I think, if you were raised in an environment where your parents' needs were placed ahead of yours. It feels so greedy to want to have somebody, when you're conversing with them, to just look you in the eye and not be busy doing something else. My girlfriend has called me on that before, where I wasn't giving her my full attention. I was still working on an email and listening, and I'm so glad that she... Let me know that 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 hurt her feelings.
0: Yeah, because it's a way of like, you know, disregarding someone even though you don't mean to. Right. I think there's another component. If I was, I'm 45. If I was, let's just say, 35 or under, I think there's this one extra component that wouldn't be there. It's, I don't know. It's something that I feel is very common. I know it's common in the gay world as well. Very common with women. It's like, well, maybe why he wasn't so enamored and attracted to me is because I'm in my 40s, right? I'm not like, however, I'm imagining I was in my 30s or in my 20s. And it must be that. And so then I really go deep into that.
1: Oh yeah, because if you're going to believe that, you're going to believe it gets worse every day.
0: Exactly, and it's a real mind fuck.
1: You you gotta. Um, I mean, you have to face that. I know. That I monster. am monster. It's and a it's, mo- it's
0: it's a mo- it's a monster. It's really weird, and I could keep saying to myself, "Well, it's okay. You're you're not at a point where you're ready yet. You need more time." Well, I mean, it's it's also been like we're at two years now, so it's okay. I don't have to force myself to do anything. I don't want to. But continuing to isolate from this. Right. Um, Continuing to withhold. Is that really healthy? I don't think so. Because you you really in order for you to really practice recovery and healing, it has to be done with other people. it's not enough to be done with like a book and a podcast
1: i'm so glad you said that we're gonna we're gonna use that one for the the montage for for next year that's (laughs) That's, i mean that's the goal of the podcast in a nutshell is i'm a cheerleader for community and and human connection therapy
0: we can't i mean i had many many years countless years every form of therapy i was an outpatient And a program for people who are sexually assaulted years. And while I think that did keep me alive to some extent, um, I still went to go off myself eight and a half years ago. It didn't have community. It's not like the people I was an outpatient with, we like went out for like a chicken salad. (laughs) (laughs) Like that wasn't going to happen.
1: Yeah, it's the week in, week out. Sometimes just hearing the the mundane details of each other's lives, you know, oh I got food poisoning uh, last week or uh you know, they want me to work extra hours at work and I and I don't that's a part of support groups. It's not all drama and epiphany. Sometimes it's it's mundane. I think I think like any relationship and for a lot of us I think that su- the support group becomes the template for uh for intimacy because what better way to begin to experience intimacy in a way uh, other than um, what's better than something where there's no strings attached, where I don't have to live with you. I get to see you once a week. It's like dipping your toe in the intimacy pool. And I think that's one of the things that I love about it is after a certain point, you're like, wow, I've got 15 people that I can call and share anything with and I, and, and vice versa, it changes how we how we view the world.
0: We're not alone anymore. No. Because that's why I didn't want to be here anymore. I didn't feel anyone understood me, anyone got me, anyone heard me. I literally would say like I'm not well. No one wanted to hear me who I had in my life at that time because that meant they were gonna to have to do something or change.
1: So what changed? What what
0: I ended up in a recovery meeting.
1: Did you did you make the attempt?
0: I or you were ready that to- day. I have no idea how I got there. You know how you drive somewhere, which is not not healthy, but you drive somewhere and you're like, I don't even remember driving here. Yes. And then you don't know where your car is in the parking lot. Yes. I had a seed heavily planted by somebody at a meeting, one of the meetings I went to in order to
1: help somebody else Mm -hmm. (laughs) change their life. Oh, the irony (laughs) so beautiful.
0: And it was written on a little piece of paper, and I knew exactly where this was, and it happened to be a mile from where I was living. And somehow I went, with the pills still on my counter, to that meeting. And for the first time in my life, I heard from people that were me and i wasn't alone and i said to myself okay well we can still do it tomorrow but we don't need to do it today but you still have the op i needed to have the option for the out truly that made me feel safe and i know this sounds sick but it made me feel safe i don't you know it was like i you can still do it tomorrow you can still and then it was i went to another meeting can still do it tomorrow you can still do it tomorrow and it was several months and then i put the pills away then it was probably nine ten months and then i i got rid of them
1: what that feel like was this was it
0: it felt good
1: it did so there was it no felt amazing there was no hesitance no. to do it
0: it felt amazing i was like what it was blissful even I was like, wow. For, it was after I did the, the fifth step where I shared all of mm-hmm. my stuff. And I felt, okay, I'm not alone in this world. There, And hearing other people's stuff, right? Like people would share their stuff with me. And that helped me because I've heard some wild stuff.
1: And you never imagine that before you get into a support group that – You're going to be touched by other people's stories. All we think of is they're going to see me and they're going to hate me and it will be a waste of time.
0: Exactly. Or they're going to think I'm, oh my God, horrible for doing that. That's disgusting. All about me, me, Mm -hmm. me, of course. Or they're going to
1: bore me. That's a big one I have. A lot of times, even when I'm heading to a meeting now is it's going to be boring and there's going to be traffic and it's never.
0: I think, don't you think that's a more common of like a substance addict thing?
1: I don't know. I never thought about that. Because
0: Andrea says the same thing. That's yeah. funny. Yeah. She wants like a riveting meeting. Yeah. 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 Ne- that makes sense.
1: <laughs> kind of like it's our cigarette. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Like a little, we need a little boost, some negative excitement yeah. going on in there. Some
1: chaos. Yeah. A little movie painted. Exactly. Yeah.
0: <laughs> like it's a show. Yeah. Yeah. Where we're, I don't have that thought. You know, my, my thought is more of, I want to be the opposite I want to be um, soothed. I I want it to take me down, not up. I got you. So I look at it like that. And it does that for me.
1: So what are the challenges today? The anorexia?
0: (sighs) The anorexia, I would say the latest one, because, you know, it's very common to switch addictions. And so I've done a great job on the workaholism. I've done an excellent job on the exercise addiction. I went into this nightly habit of eating ice cream. I mean, you can become addicted to anything. I mean, it's ultimately it's sugar, but it's a very specific sugar for me. And it's tied to how I was groomed. I was brought frozen yogurt. That was the main part of the grooming process. My mom's anorexic. She wasn't going to buy me frozen yogurt. So I got brought the treat, mm-hmm. right? And I hurt my knee a memorial weekend. And I'm just piecing it all together now. But I started this habit of having ice cream, like giving myself a treat every night. It was a form of like self, self-soothing, but I'd dissociate with it. So I I could be totally full, but I had to have the ice cream and be watching TV. And it was like having a blankie. But this was like causing chaos in my body. Like I'm gaining weight. I'm not feeling good when I wake up. I'm not sleeping well because I'm pumping my body full of sugar. And now I'm 33 days sober off of it. But I switched over Today to something else. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Kudos.
0: Yeah. And that doesn't mean I won't ever have ice cream again, but like. It's how sneaky Mm -hmm. something can come in, and I have compassion. You know, it's like you give a little kid an ice cream, right, Mm. when they like they're sick or something. And that's probably what I was doing, is I was soothing her
1: with food. Something is. She's a therapist, and she said to me that when I start to go to that place in my head where I'm like, "Oh, you failed at this," you know this plan you had to not eat this or you know to not do such and such when I fall short on that she said think of yourself as a car in a lane on a highway you didn't get into a fatal accident you're just drifting outside your lane just make an adjustment and that really that really helped me uh, have a more nuanced compassionate uh, view
0: yeah because I'm doing the best I can I'm not you know I'm not I'm not doing meth like we're okay and it's understandable you know I heard someone say like treating healing and recovery is like wearing a loose garment Mm -hmm. like don't like strangle it and be so rigid with it you know we can be you know give ourselves like some grace this shit is hard and my life is a gazillion times better than it was before that doesn't mean there isn't stuff that comes up and stuff that I still have to work on, but, like, it genuinely, the promises that that are made in, in literature, the things that people talk about, like, it it really is here for you. There's a big catch, though.
1: You it just takes work.
0: You gotta go through, like, a lot of pain to get to it, but I think it's worth it. I mean, I wouldn't be here, I don't so. think there's
1: anything that's, that is as worth the effort spent. Is that because it's the umbrella that everything in our life is underneath. It's it's like if you do, a lack of working on those things will degrade the quality of everything underneath it. In my experience and experience of people who are, you know, who, who I respect, it's, it's just efficient.
0: The best gift is that I can show up here with you today. I can show up getting a salad later. There is no mass. This is who I am. And I don't go to my car going, oh, my God, did I do this wrong? Am I this? Am I this? And you can be present with people and actually, like, enjoy the experience and not be in your head. That, for me, that's the greatest gift is to not be performative anymore. That's exhausting. Mm-hmm. I had a show going at all times.
1: Sure, yeah. Do you? Can you recall any time where you shared your story in a meeting and somebody approached you afterwards, and it had turned a light bulb on for them?
0: So many times.
1: Give me, give me one, if you can, if you can recall.
0: No, there is one. It's just interesting how it happens. I anyway, know she's young; she's nineteen, and. She didn't look like she was paying attention in the meeting and being transparent. I had a little, like, low-key judgment about it. You know, like, oh, she picked up her phone a few times, which is like a no-no, and da-da-da. You know, I had a thought about that. And she was actually taking notes, just FYI. But she came up to me and said, I've never told anyone before, and my father... Has been molesting me since I was five years old, and he still is today. And she's 19. And she felt she could share it with me because I was being pimped out, molested, whatever we want to call it, from eleven to twenty-one. I was on air. And the main abuser would fly out and abuse and continue to abuse me. And that part of my story, it is un that's an unusual story, right? and it made her feel so much less shame and you could see it in her like a weight was taken off her there was some kind of hope because think the shame she was putting on herself from being an adult so to speak right at age 18 you know and now she's 19 and it's still happening and she's not stopping it and I sat in my car and that rotten parking lot of that (laughs) meeting and I went this is why I'm doing the work so I can heal and openly share my story and have conversations and not be so triggered where I can really hold space for people and I'm not you know drowning in it or exhausted Mm -hmm. by it I'm honored to do that that'll never um, leave me because I wish I had that yeah many years ago oh my god i got a little bit of it from like certain tv shows you know like our movies like like kind of like the lifetime movie mm-hmm. and i'd be like well if they're making a movie about it, it must have happened to someone or some of these like crime shows right. and so i was like well it had to happen to other people or it wouldn't be a storyline so that was a little helpful i got some of that from there
1: anything else you'd like to share let's plug your uh your stuff, your your socials and uh, your podcast.
0: Yeah, the best way to get more of this, I do a lot of like fear, self-doubt, money mindset stuff. So if you're into hearing my style and my sense of humor, you'll love my show. It's Project Me with Tiffany Carter. It's on all the things and TikTok, instagram at project me with tiffany it's me i'm the only person in those messages and i actually read them and and reply i don't give anyone else access because a lot of people reach out and share very personal stuff and i take it seriously so i would welcome you know anyone reaching out
1: well i think i think you found the (laughs) the right audience for for that stuff on, on this podcast uh tiffany thank you so much for sharing all your stuff appreciate it. Thank you. What a great guest and thanks again to Juliet for uh, for suggesting her. This is from the what has helped you survey and this is figure filled out by a gender fluid person who refers to themselves as sleepy wanderer. What are your issues or struggles? Disorganized attachment, major depression, anxiety disorder, Crohn's disease, low frequency low-frequency deafness, and chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, what's helped you deal with them? CBT and DBT frameworks. And for those of you that don't know, that's cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy. And DBT is typically used for people uh, who have um, borderline personality disorder um, or uh, some of the symptoms of it. But anybody can benefit from DBT. They often uh, teach... One of the things it helps with is to de-escalate overly emotional situations. And uh, uh, some places are teaching law enforcement uh, people how to do it, which is much, much needed. Anyway, uh, learning to love myself, learning that being a disabled person can be empowering and joyful, talking to my partner about my inner punitive parent, putting my love of caring into productive and helpful ways every day. I love that. What, if anything... Have people said or done that's helped you with your issues? When a person gives me space to talk, like a whole lot of space, I find it hard to truly see and open up how I'm feeling and what I may be struggling with that day. But if a person gives me pause, lets me know that they're ready to listen when I'm ready to speak, it's absolutely amazing because I learned as a child to always hold space for others and not for myself. It's very powerful and reaffirming when I get given that space too. That makes sense. Thank you for that. Uh, This is also from the uh, What Has Helped You survey. I think think that's what that one was from. Yeah. Uh, This was filled up by Grace. Not to be confused with Gracie. She's yet to fill out a survey. Um, She writes uh, about what are your issues or struggles? Anxiety that transformed over the last few years from intense health anxiety into incredible fear of failure. Also, more recently, my depression has cannibalized the anxiety so that I spent a lot of the day at home alone feeling hopeless. What's helped you deal with them? Sounds silly, but soda water. I started drinking it regularly when I got bad gastritis that was exacerbated by stress. It was a constant sharp pain and the gas and the soda physically alleviates the pressure. I now drink it to calm down even when my stomach doesn't hurt. When I... When I can feel it working, it's like my whole torso opens up and calms down. Beyond that, I've gotten better lately at naming emotions and also gradually better at telling people, I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm stressed, whatever it may be. I don't like to use it as an excuse for bad behavior or bad decisions, but it's the first step to then add, I want to change this or I don't want to be like this anymore. I find that if you ask for patience and give what you can back to another person, it's another way of saying, bear with me. I'll be able to change soon. Oh, I love that. I love that. What, if anything, have people said or done that's helped you? My mother was brutally honest with me, but in a kind way. She told me I was the smartest and most creative of her children. That made me feel really guilty because I don't want to be better or more valuable than my siblings. But then she said... You handle stress poorly, you're not good at putting yourself out there, and you have no hard skills. She didn't mean it in a harsh way, and I didn't take it like that. In fact, it felt freeing, like, yes, I desperately need help with those things, but more than that, in spite of those imperfections, or whatever you want to call them, I'm still loved, I'm still valuable to other people. It helped me look at my siblings, who are both smart and creative, by the way, and marvel at how excellent they are, too. My sister, so sociable and lovable and funny, and my brother, so calm and scientific, and with this amazing ability to put people at ease. In other words, after a life of perfectionism and being told I have to succeed, 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 it helps to hear you're not a bad person. You're just, (laughs) you just suck at meeting people. Well, thank you for sharing that. I'm glad. I'm glad that you were able to take it in and and not. Feel offended or or criticized by that. I mean, that's so important, and that's one of the things I'm grateful for, for on the podcast. Is I I have had to grow a lot uh, in the in the 12 years. You know, blind spots that I had, making stuff all about me. You know, not not necessarily things that I'm I no longer do, but I've gotten better at. And a lot of that was the result of kind, constructive diplomatically worded criticism from listeners and the fact that they put it in a way that was palatable palatable didn't feel like they were unloading on me or judging me just wanting the best for me incredibly helpful and i'm very very grateful uh this is from the shame and secret survey uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself hoping for relief She identifies as straight. She is in her 40s, says that she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, She writes, I was groomed and sexually abused while in high school by my coach. After that ended, I was in a violent and sexually abusive relationship that took several years to escape. With therapy, I am just starting to let myself feel anything. I've hid from the emotions by acting out in unhealthy ways, including seeking out sexually degrading experiences and compulsive masturbation. I fight feelings of self loathing most days. Uh, she's been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, I was physically abused as well as sexually abused by the boyfriend mentioned above. I was also emotionally abused and neglected by my parents growing up. I was never good enough, no matter how well I performed in sports or school. My parents did nothing to protect or support me. In response to learning about my coach, they called me a whore. Wow. I was made to feel that everything was my fault. They ignored the sexual abuse and often invited my abusive boyfriend to stay the night. I often feel like I'm not good and do not deserve happiness or peace. Any positive experiences with abusers? I have no remaining positive feelings about my sexual abusers I have positive experiences with my parents especially family vacations I felt like I was in a different family when we were on vacation my parents paid attention to me showed me kindness and love I wish every day would have been like vacation that's so interesting because for most people vacations were the things that were people argued the most that's so interesting Darkest thoughts. I think about what it would be like to become a slave to a man, to be humiliated and used daily. I think about that man sharing me with friends and strangers as if I am nothing more than an object. I think about whatever that is. I think about whatever that is what I deserve in life. Darkest secrets. My abusive boyfriend often tied me down or restrained me and used my body in depraved ways. Now, when I am overcome with thoughts and memories of those times, I replicate some of the things he did to me. I cause myself physical pain and injury in the hope that I may find relief from the memories and feelings. The relief I experience is only temporary, but even those moments are a welcome break. And that is. St- so not unusual for somebody who has experienced stuff like like you have Um, sexual fantasies most powerful to you I have a recurring fantasy of having sex in a hotel with two men that I do not know the fantasy involves them using my body for their purposes without regard to my needs or feelings and leaving when they are done with me sharing this makes me feel sad sad that I feel like I deserve so little kindness and should be seen as nothing more than an object for male pleasure. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell my parents that their failure to love and support me led to so much pain in my life. I want to tell them they should have protected me instead of abandoning me. I needed them. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish to heal from my past. Have you shared these things with others? I'm sharing them with my therapist. He does not judge me for my past and is helping me heal. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel anger and pain. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You aren't alone. No matter how much shame you feel about what happened to you or how you responded, you are not alone. You deserve to find peace and relief from your pain. Thank you for that. And uh, I'm glad. I'm glad that you can say to uh, a a stranger what you would ideally say to yourself. But why is it so hard for us to say those things to ourselves? To be our to be our own best friend. That's a, that's the sixty four thousand dollar question. How's that for an old reference? But Thank you for filling that out and sending you sending you some love. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself wildfire, and she writes, I am so happy I have such a great psychiatrist. He's helped me navigate the difficulties I've experienced in my life stemming from childhood sexual trauma. Therapy in the beginning is hard, exclamation point. Confronting the uncomfortable thoughts and memories makes you want to quit just so you don't have to go back to those dark places. But once you do confront those awful memories and work through them with someone you can trust in a safe space, truly makes a difference. So thankful for a good psychiatrist and therapist. Uh, oh, so thankful for the good psychiatrists and therapists out there. They really do deserve recognition for the work they do and their genuine compassion they have to want to help people. I'm grateful and proud of myself for sticking with therapy when I most wanted to quit. Yeah, hi. High fucking five to you and to the therapists and the psychiatrists out there that are that are doing the good work and helping and helping people. There are some shitty ones out there, but there's a lot of great ones. This is from the Shame and Secrets survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Blissful Betty Wannabe. Um, she identifies as bisexual. She's in her forties. Uh, She says that she was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, She was the victim of sexual abuse, and one time she reported it, and then another time she never reported it. Um, I'm just going to condense this part, but she was raped by a male friend that she trusted when her husband was was out of town. Um, I'm going to kind of fast forward to the, the end of her description. Uh, of it. She writes, I lay there crying myself to sleep. I tell my husband what happened and when I refuse to press charges because I don't want to be drugged through court like that, my character being tried as we hear female victims endure, my husband says it's like I was his shiny toy someone else played with and returned broken. I've never felt so devastated, alone, or ashamed. That That had to hurt probably more than the incident itself. I hear that all the time from people who have experienced sexual violation and they go to somebody who is supposed to protect them or love them and they get rejected or they're not believed or they're shamed. Oh, that's so sad. I'm so sorry to hear that. She's been physically and emotionally abused. I grew up in a horrifically dysfunctional family, moving from town to town and state to state to keep ahead of my biological mom, Uh, mom slash GMA and CPS. Uh, I'm not sure what GMA means, but CPS means Child Productive Services. Uh, Maybe GMA means grandma. Lots of hitting, screaming, slapping, beating with a belt, hanger, sometimes homemade paddles or whatever was handy at the time. One of the first memories of this abuse was just after moving with my dad, uh, stepmom and new baby half-sister when I was about four and a half. I couldn't pronounce washing machine. I was handcuffed to my bunk bunk bed until I could pronounce it correctly. Wow. Any positive experiences with abusers? Yes, when it was just my dad and I, I was golden. We would go woodcutting and logging and hunting together. We would sit in the cab of the truck and sip on black coffee while watching the sun rise and the deer wander through the meadow and down the old logging road to the lake. Darkest thoughts. My deepest, darkest thoughts are of running away. My youngest children are in high school. My oldest children struggling at adulting. I just want to disappear. God, go, no, go where no one knows me and where the circus that is my life is absent. Darkest Secrets. My deepest secret is that when I was about eight, a set of twins that were best friends with my little sister took turns touching me. I, in turn, did that to another friend about the same age. I hope I didn't impact her life negatively. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you being taken out of control tied up used and taken any way they want Sharing that makes me feel vulnerable and a bit fucked up What if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to I'd like to say I love you and life is worth it to my brother Before he committed suicide at 16 to myself. I'd like to say. I'm sorry. I love you. I'm sorry. I didn't protect you better Wow, that is heavy What, if anything, do you wish for? For my kids to learn to break the generational trauma crap and thrive. I wish I had done more work sooner. I don't know anybody that doesn't wish that they would have gotten help sooner or grown quicker. So you're not alone in that one, my friend. Uh, If you shared these things with others, some, the sexual fantasies conversation landed me on a kink site in a relationship with a man that is much more kink advanced and focused and feeling stuck and like I should have kept them to myself how do you feel after writing these things down Disgusted that sometimes I allow myself to feel so powerless is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or struggles be kind and compassionate with yourself and someone else's violation of you does not diminish your worth amen amen thank you for that that uh got some heavy heavy stuff this is from the what has helped you survey filled out by cassidy uh, what are your issues or struggles uh, she writes, Your Mark Marin episode was a punch in the stomach. My husband received the exact same leukemia diagnosis right before the pandemic. It's incredibly rare in healthy 30 somethings. Uh, my husband ran marathons as a hobby, which is why it's not an obvious diagnosis, like Mark pointed out. He articulated the pain and panic perfectly. You feel robbed. My low point was looking for my car keys as I was about to meet friends. I couldn't find my keys, which I've never lost before. I tore the house apart, which I've also never done before or since. I pulled coats out of the closet and dumped them on the floor. I pulled out drawers and dumped the contents out. It was a mess. I was having a panic attack. I could barely breathe. If you asked me what I was doing in that moment, I would have said, I'm trying to find the car keys. But I would lost all sense of rationality. Ironically, the car keys were on the kitchen counter in plain sight the whole time. What's helped you deal with them? As I was driving to the hospital to see my husband in the ICU, I was listening to an interview with Dan Wilson from the band Semisonic talking about writing the song Closing Time while his newborn daughter was in the NICU. He casually says, it was really hard. I started bawling, and as simple as that phrase was, it felt so profound. I realized now it was permission to admit I was miserable and how much the situation sucked. I've been doing so much emotional labor, putting on a brave face for my spouse and telling him he was doing a great job fighting cancer and that he was going to make it and trying to be positive because I didn't him want him to give up. And unfortunately, a lot of family members who chose to dump their own anxiety about the situation onto me it felt good to drop any delusion of silver lining and admit it was agonizing. I wonder if you would you would benefit uh, from finding your your people that are recovering from grief. Maybe finding a grief support group, uh, you might find some comfort in that. I know some people who've done that and they're really glad they made that decision. I know support groups aren't for everybody, but just a thought. Uh, what, if anything, have you have people said or done that's helped you? Honestly, the most helpful thing was when people acknowledged how city the situation was. Yes, and yes, and yes. It's funny, our instinct oftentimes, or society's instinct, is to want for people is for us to point out everything good they have in their life to see some because we're so uncomfortable being around people who are sad or in pain that we want to change it for us, not for them. And we can't even see that. And I've done that so many times in the past. And I don't do that anymore. I don't do that. At least I hope I don't. I don't think I do. Um, And she also writes, I think sometimes they search for, oh yeah, for exactly what I just said, for for a silver lining to make themselves feel better, or maybe there's some sort of lesson you're supposed to take. Well-meaning, but vague offers to help are also more emotional labor because it obligates me to think of how you can help. Yes, super, super important. And so one of the things I tried to do, for instance, my friend Jimmy uh, who was a guest on this podcast uh, and has gone through a heart transplant that was eight years ago, but his health is starting to suffer again, and he just had a tumor removed, uh, and and he is uh, struggling, and I and I called him. And specifically said, you know, uh, I would love to stop by the grocery store, um, get you anything that you need, or just come by and talk. Um, just let me know. It was he, he didn't pick up the phone. Uh, so I, I left that. And I agree. Specificity is, is huge. And expressing it in terms of I want to do this rather than let me know if you want something. This is from the Memorable Vacation Arguments, one of my favorite surveys. Uh, this is filled out by Yuls. and uh, she writes, My family used to visit a local restaurant at our favorite vacation spot. We went there again with a senior colleague of my stepdad and the best friend of my mother. It was during a time where my stepdad had lost his job because he was always uh, highly narcissistic and creating trouble. My mother also has narcissistic traits and stayed with him because he could provide for her more than she thought she could on her own. He abused her, but I don't know the full extent. However, he choked, kicked, and punched her in front of me. She had a blue eye on one of our vacations, and I had to run around looking like a pirate. Uh, oh, no, and had to run around looking like a pirate. Uh, I was strictly forbidden to talk about the incidents, Uh, However, while we were sitting there at the table with their friends, they started discussing domestic violence. My stepdad looked me deep in the eye with a grinding face and said, y'alls, you know, I would never do something like this to your mother. Since I was eight and he was smiling at me, I took the conversation with lightness and said, but you did. My parents' friends were immediately shocked and the mood shifted real quick. My stepdad almost started crying, but not in remorse. He acted as if he was betrayed or wrongfully called out. Now I know he was just trying to cover up the truth, but I'm pretty sure everyone knew I was telling the truth. My stepdad got up, left the restaurant, and started to walk by the beach in the dark, and my mom followed him. As a child, I didn't understand why anyone, especially my mother, was so upset. I didn't understand why I had done anything wrong. I ran after my mother, who was chasing down my stepdad, and was screaming at her that she should stop. She stopped, looked at me, and said, you are not my daughter. I felt a strong shock to my system, something I went on to experience many more times during my childhood. I looked at the waves, and I felt so alone, like I did not belong on this earth. I looked at my mom and said, if you don't stop, I'm going to drown myself. She replied, then do it and ran after my stepdad. I stood at the beach for a while, not knowing what to do, and watched my mom reaching my stepdad and them leaving together into the darkness. I remember thinking to myself for the first time about suicide and whether I should do it. I looked at the waves. I knew if I tried to drown, it would take plenty of time because I was a very good diver and swimmer. And I looked into the sky and the blurry lights of the old charming street and the village around me. And I thought, but life is so beautiful. I don't want to leave. Wow. And I'm glad you're still here. 18 years later. I think, I think I'm doing the math right. Thank you for, uh, for sharing that, man. Fuck, you got <laughs> some heavy surveys, some heavy surveys today. Uh, and then finally, this is from the love survey. And this is filled out by the mom faking it till she kind of makes it. And uh, she writes, I love when my kids hold my hand, especially knowing one day I'm going to reach out for it and they won't want to anymore. I love when I'm in a bad mood and my husband doesn't do anything particularly funny, but it still makes me laugh. I love when a song comes out in the car and you're transported back in time to a happy moment. I love the start of spring nights when the frogs are chirping so loud. It should be annoying, but it turns out to be peaceful. And I love when we visit with my mother-in-law and she leaves and my husband agrees that, yes, she is crazy. Thank you for those. Anybody out there struggling? It's so easy to go into that doom place. You know, I still do it quite a bit. I'm 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 ashamed to admit that I, I the future is a bad neighborhood for me because I am not a fan of the unknown. I never paint a rosy picture and then I base my feelings and my mood on my shitty crystal ball. And uh, it's been a rough fucking week of that. Too much to go into uh, here on the podcast, but suffice it to say, I've, I don't know if I've ever slept less or been in more uh, anxiety, um, stuff that I've never mentioned on the on the podcast that, uh, that that I'm talking about and some of the stuff I have mentioned on the podcast. But I'm glad that I have a community of support around me and that I, I allow my friends to love me and they ask me how i'm doing i tell them i'm struggling i'm scared i'm stressed i'm sleep deprived um and it makes it just a tiny bit better you know it certainly doesn't make it worse and you know sometimes the, the most loving thing we can do is to allow somebody to love us to do something for us and um my girlfriend has been so compassionate and uh, she's going to come over Tomorrow night, as she does every weekend, and uh, I'm looking forward to just letting all that love in. Um, It feels good. And if you're out there, um, find your tribe, man. Let them love you. It's certainly better than uh, sitting behind our wall going, I'm going to do it all myself. There's no way to go through life. So if you're out there on you're struggling just never forget that you are not alone and thanks for listening
0: everybody i know is bizarrely beautiful everybody i know weird is bizarrely way. beautifully everybody fucked up, up in some weird way bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way